Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll bring you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we'll report from Davos. It's not Swiss-focused, but it's just we have a way of again, trusting each other or willing to have as many people as possible at the table to address the re real challenges. Plus, we look at the importance of the European Cultural Journal. We had the colleagues to remind us that this war since 2014 had been ongoing and we mustn't forget about this. And they had been pleading and asking and arguing and sometimes screaming, rightfully so, that, that the European community doesn't fully forget about this. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the curator with some highlights from our Davos coverage. The Monaco 2014 attended the World Economic Forum and did a series of interviews for us. And our first series is with the CEO of Heathrow Airport, John Holland Kay. He caught up with Monaco's Tom Webb to discuss the airport's future and its relationship with countries around the world. I think Greece is one of the most popular destinations for people in the UK. It's guaranteed sunshine, but it's also important from a business point of view. It's a significantly growing market, and so we're very proud of the connections that we have with Greece. So at the panel today, I just watched it, there was a look at the future of aviation. You mentioned that Virgin Atlantic is going to do this first ever transatlantic net zero emission flight from Heathrow to JFK. How are plans going and how excited are you about this? Well, this is going to be a, a milestone, I think, uh, demonstrating that long-haul flight with sustainable aviation fuel is a reality. And although this will be the first, it won't, won't be the last, I hope that this will just become normal very soon. And this is something that is important the UK takes a lead on. The SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, is a huge new market that the UK could be a global leader in. So the fact that the government has initiated this competition for the first long-haul flight to New York with uh, South from Heathrow and as a, a first of type is very significant. It's a statement of intent that the UK wants to be a leader and we should be. We've got the raw materials, we've got the technical skills and we have taken a lead in decarbonising yes. aviation and we should get the benefit of that in the UK. So at Heathrow 2022 traffic ended around 76% of pre-pandemic levels. Do you think we're going to return to those 2019 levels anytime soon? I'm not sure, actually, how quickly we will get back to 2019 levels. We need to make sure as an aviation sector that we have the capacity to meet any level of demand so that passengers can have the smooth journey through Heathrow that they have always expected. Uh, so that is what we are working on. We certainly have some headwinds. COVID is back in some way, and we've seen governments reintroducing restrictions because of that. We've got the economic headwinds. We've got, of course, the war in the Ukraine, which deters a lot of people from traveling particularly from the US to come into Europe. But uh, from my point of view, we just have to focus on rebuilding capacity across the aviation sector so that if you're traveling, you can fly with confidence knowing that we will look after you at Heathrow. So you've previously said that you would provide an update on the timeline for Heathrow's third runway about early 2023. How have things moved on? Well, of course, we had to put the third runway work on hold when the pandemic hit. We're about halfway through our 
planning, application preparation at that point. So we're just taking a look at how we restart that. So I'll be able to talk about that a little bit more after we've completed that work. But what we've seen over the last few years is just how critical it is that Heathrow is able to expand. We've seen how uh, many of the arguments that politicians use when they were backing the expansion of Heathrow, when when they voted four to one in Parliament, have been borne out. We've seen the way in which long-haul flying has concentrated into Heathrow during the pandemic. We've seen how when spare capacity was available at Heathrow for the first time, many long-haul airlines, including from important markets like India, that hadn't been able to get into Heathrow, suddenly were able to and came in at scale. And we've also seen the way in which more UK destinations have been able to connect into Heathrow giving those regions the benefits of the global connectivity the Heathrow office. So the promise of Heathrow connecting all of Britain to, to the growing markets of the world was really borne out during the pandemic. So that's why it is critical that particularly as uh, an independent nation outside of the EU that uh, Heathrow expands. One other thing which I never thought that we would see is the counterfactual if you like. What happens if Heathrow doesn't expand? Well for many people, they'd say, well, it's fine that we should, either, that we should just fly through uh, Paris or Amsterdam if we want to get to global destinations. But what we saw during COVID was that we were cut off from the continent three times. So if our entire economic strategy was based on connecting through France or Amsterdam, that would have been a failed strategy. If we, and, and it just shows the importance for the UK as an independent country having an independent world-leading hub airport. So in the UK, it's been hard to ignore strikes causing havoc over the last few months. Can we expect a smoother summer out of Heathrow this year? Well, strikes have been a factor across the UK. Actually, they haven't had much impact on aviation so far, and I hope it will stay that way. Our focus is on passenger service. That's the kind of organisation we are. And the main thing that we need to focus on is to get the whole aviation sector back to full capacity. If you look at aviation around the world, there's been a huge reduction in uh, the number of people working in the sector, the amount of experience there is, the amount of investment in facilities and the aircraft over the last couple of years as airports and airlines and ground handlers have tried to conserve cash during COVID. Now the market demand has come back very quickly. We've done an amazing job to be able to scale up as much as we have. But there are still some scars in the sector that, that need to heal. And our focus for the next 12 months is to get the whole sector back to full capacity. This isn't just a UK issue, by the way. Uh, if you go to Canada or the US or even the Middle East and certainly continental Europe, you'll see many airports and airlines that are still well below their usual capacity. So that's why our, our focus is uh, let's get back to full capacity, uh, get uh, everyone back to work, let's invest in the facilities so that you as a passenger can be confident that whether you're travelling for Easter, whether you're travelling over the summer, you're going to have a great service travelling through Heathrow and that's what I am focused on. And our next interview straight from Davos is with Alexandra Edelman, Head of Presence Switzerland, which is responsible for promoting the country's brand internationally. Let's have a listen. This morning when I was driving to the to the house of Switzerland, I noticed the snow, which is partially <laughs> different from May. So it's a first feeling, not only about the weather, but the ambience is very different. Uh, being back in January in Davos, in that wide surrounding, which was slightly unexpected based on the weather <laughs> for Christmas, uh, it makes part of the experience of Davos is uh, the cold 
and the snow because it makes everything a bit more smooth and it gives a special ambience that supports the discussion. Do, do you think the location and the weather are contributing factors to the success of this annual event? It does. I'm not saying that with sunny Davos is not a good one. <laughs> Today was pretty sunny. But uh, being away is something different. All the leaders traveling to Davos, it takes time. So slowing down a little bit to open your mind. I don't want to be too dramatical, but the idea of taking the time, traveling to Davos takes time. It makes people certainly more motivated and the one coming and the one who wants to attend. And on top of it, then being in Davos, which is with all my respect, not London, New York, makes that you have nothing else to do but focusing on the topics. If you're in London, New York, people in the evening are going to travel away. You have so many meetings, so many opportunities here. It makes like a bubble, not a bubble cut from the world, but a bubble that allows you uh, to focus on the important discussions happening. It is indeed a very, very special event. Your job is to get Switzerland in the world map and, and, and make people aware of the country and make them know it's better. How big of a thing is this annual meeting by the World Economic Forum for the brand Switzerland? Oh, first, it's key. Uh, first of all, it has a massive exposure in the media worldwide, uh, which means it happens in Switzerland. So the, f the only fact that it happens in Switzerland says something about the country. We want everybody to be here. It's identified by the leaders from the world as a place where you can have proper discussion. I think the, the value of the brand Switzerland is also the, to do with it, and same for the, for the WEF itself. Being here is not like being in any other country. They trust Switzerland for bringing platforms that allow discussions with not always like-minded countries. It's important to have that guarantee that you can discuss. It's the same as in Geneva. You see all international organizations, the way the dialogue happens in Switzerland is different. And it's not about, it's not Swiss fo focused, but it's just, we have a way of again, trusting each other or willing to have as many people as possible at the table to address the re real challenges. So for us, it's, uh, it's a very, so it's, first of all, whereas you have 3,000 leaders meeting where, so first of all, it's happening in Switzerland, Plus, we have access to them. They can come to the house of Switzerland, so it's great for us. We're mainly active abroad, but when something big happens in Switzerland, we're also interested. You mentioned the house of Switzerland already. Tell me about your your week ahead and, and what your plan for this week is, and also what's happening at the house of Switzerland. So I guess all of us are going to sleep on Friday evening, <laughs> which is already great. Uh, now, it's, it's a pretty busy week. The house of Switzerland, there's two parts. We have first... So, one hand, we have facilities for the Minister and Secretary of State for the meetings. Uh, so we have lounges where they can have bilateral meetings, where they can have, um, I wouldn't say negotiation because it's not the case this year, but they can meet. Uh, we have, for instance, the handover between Switzerland and England for the Ukraine Recovery Conference uh, happening at the House. So it's a very, let's say, B2B uh, part of the House or P2P, politics to politics, uh, happening there, which doesn't have to be public. Sometimes these with press conferences, but mainly it's facilities for the officials to meet. And the other part of the house, uh, it, it's really dedicated to panels uh, where we also address kind of like in the WEF, actually, we have different topics. Uh, we start in the morning with uh, two conferences, one about quantum computing and how ready are we or not. Uh, to make it happening with private and public uh, speakers coming. We have at the same time another one about uh, sustainability for boards where you have board members coming and discussing how must board members address the SDGs 
in a way. Uh, is it different or the same as companies? And then all week we have in the afternoon tomorrow a special afternoon for Geneva that we organize with our mission to the UN. We have different topics from uh, plastic pollution to uh, harnessing power of data, um, sustainable finance. So we have a very broad scale of discussion. To be honest, what happens in the evenings when the official part of this event is over? <laughs> uh, I would say the official part is almost never over because we have even late dinner with ministers. Uh, I mean, the day are too short, is too short in Davos. So it starts for real tomorrow morning, it starts at seven and it will end around 10 or 11. And the same on Wednesday. Tonight we have a press conference at uh, 8.30 mm -hmm. p.m. So it's, we don't have secret parties uh, in the evening. I'm sorry about that. I would love to brag about how cool the house is at night. It's very cool. But uh, it's also part of the charm of Davos is that we have a very high level of security. I'm not sure that my colleagues from the <laughs> armed force of the police would love to have uh, secret parties within the house of Switzerland. And no liquid is allowed when you go through that security to different venues. Indeed, but we have some liquid inside the house. <laughs> that's, that's very true. You talked about the significance for, for the brand Switzerland already that comes with, with, with the WEF. But if, if you talk about economic aspects and you talk about what kind of a boost this event offers for Swiss economy and companies, how would you, how would you explain that? So I think the WEF is not mainly about Swiss economy. It's a global event happening in Switzerland. The direct impact, uh, how many people are traveling to Davos. So there's an industry around the WEF itself, but it's a very, I wouldn't say limited, but it's, it's a defined circle. Uh, the main purpose of the WEF is not to support Swiss economy, but it happens that Swiss companies, the big ones, but not only, and also Swiss universities, it's so very important. We have a very strong delegation of uh, universities uh, attending here, of uh, politicians for different levels. It supports on a long-term perspective to have a seat at the table. It supports indirectly the prosperity of Switzerland, but it's not the main goal of the WEF, of course, but it happens. It's certainly not bad for the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, again, being at the table is a long-term perspective that we support with being here. Alexander, considering that your job is to get Switzerland on the world map, how do you measure your success after this week is over? So I must say Switzerland is on the map without us. Our job is to, <laughs> to increase the visibility in different fields because we're already on the map, but we are part of it. But Switzerland is strong enough <laughs> that we don't have to push it too far. Uh, success is, so first of all, being here, being seen, by part of the 3,000 leaders attending the WEF is already on a very marketing aspect, a target audience. It's great to access these people because they are part of the one we're targeting. Uh, how many people attend even at the house? This is something important. Uh, the quality of discussion and the level of satisfaction from the ministers based on the facilities we provide. This is part of the KPIs we have. And of course, the uh, media treatment of the event we are measuring it, but it's less connected to the house. So we have monitoring of how many times Switzerland is present in the media during the WEF. So we measure the volume of uh, Switzerland and WEF-linked media. And on top of it, if media are talking about the events happening at the house, of course, it will be like a cherry on the cake, but we're not focusing so only on media coverage in this case, which is take what it is. But first of all, it has to be content. Uh, it has to be relevant for the content and discussion have to be good.
You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24, another highlight from the World Economic Forum. We are in Davos indeed, and this time we speak with Aslek Holmberg, president of the Sami Council, an NGO that represents the indigenous Sami people from the northern parts of Finland, Sweden, Norway and Russia. He spoke to Monaco's Markus Hippie. Well, I'm part of the indigenous people's delegation. That is, I think, for the first time we are around 10 people. So it's growing the indigenous um, participation here. So the aim is to get our voice um, better heard also in the global economic discussions. So I'll be talking about um, climate change, uh, both direct and indirect impacts uh, that uh, it has on our communities, culture and rights, and also how should our rights be acknowledged in in business framework when considering uh, for example outside investors approach towards uh, the sami then why it's important for also for their benefit to consider our rights so these are the main main messages shall we start with the impact of 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 the climate change obviously some aspects are more obvious than others we know that the weather is getting warmer and you are feeling the impact of that but the climate change comes with with many other issues you're facing as well Yes, so part that I'm talking about is the indirect impact. So besides us um, being uh, or ongoing these uh, ecological uh, major shifts in the seasons and in the um, species, populations and, and so on, then we have impacts of the push for the green shift. So we have uh, many different kinds of development projects uh, proposed to our territories, which uh, often uh, compete over the land use um, with our traditional uh, ways of using the lands. What kind of things are you talking about? What has been proposed and what is happening? For example, um, wind power industry is a growing uh, or booming industry also in the in the Sami territories, uh, often without the consent of the communities. And another one is a mining industry for, for minerals, for the electrification of uh, transportation, for example. What kind of a challenge is it for you, us like in international circles, try to make people understand where you come from, obviously where the indigenous Sami people live, for example, in the very high up north in Finland, Sweden, Norway and and Russia, we can safely presume that about 99% of people have never been there and most people don't understand what life is like. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's part of the challenge because we have to start from very basics to tell that we actually exist, we are there, what is our livelihood. Uh, and I guess many people, when they think of the Arctic, they think of this vast, uh, even empty areas. But like in our region, we don't have any areas that we would not be using actively. So that's part of the message that we have to try to deliver. So just in case someone doesn't know how you use all of those territories, can you tell us? Yeah, so uh, for example, the vast uh, tundra areas and forests are reindeer grazing lands, their hunting grounds, their fishing lakes and rivers there. So um, these are our traditional uh, livelihoods are using these areas and, and it's what I would call our cultural scenery, like our cultural scenery is uh, unmodified uh, nature. You work... As a president of the Sami Council, representing the indigenous Sami people from, as I said already, Russia, Sweden, Finland and Norway, does it come with challenges representing all those people from those countries? 
In today's situation, there are um, challenges. For example, our official cooperation with the member organizations on the Russian side is, is on hold. So currently, we are not speaking on behalf of them. But I would say at times of peace, our cooperation has been very fluent. Um, our interests are common. We work with uh, cultural issues, with language, with uh, rights to traditional practices and economies uh, with them yeah what is your feeling about the situation that some people are facing at the moment obviously the Sami council is a great organization representing the interests of those people but how optimistic do you feel about the future how many challenges are there to tackle at the moment to to, to improve your situation well uh, we don't lack challenges that's uh, that's for sure i mean We are in a situation of political marginalization and that is framing everything like as I'll be talking about here the fundamental changes that we are going through regarding the environmental changes but then when you add the political marginalization and the push for green shift and and the demand for our areas so these are some huge challenges that that we are facing But that being said, we are working with different methods and, and there have been some uh, positive outcomes. Like now we have uh, Supreme Court uh, rulings in favor of the Sami people from Norway, Finland and Sweden. So we have some uh, legal recognition of our rights to practice our culture. So, so that is something to, to work on. Have you come across something or do you see something that has particularly delighted you when it comes to different ways of supporting your culture and how you can keep the Sami culture alive? Well, I would say that uh, the Sami cultural field uh, is is very diverse and we have, uh, of course, when we talk about culture, we're talking it in a broad sense. So we talk about the traditional livelihoods, the language and and, and so on. But of course we have these uh, new and emerging fields of Sami culture. For example, the Sami film industry is something that is uh, growing um, year by year and, and getting better, I would say, and getting more attention. So that's uh, I'm I'm excited about these kinds of new developments. Asla, give us some film recommendations. Yeah, actually, I think tomorrow is the... Um, One premiere, there was the first screening already of a new Sami film called Ellos Etnu. La Elva Leva, I think is the name in Norwegian, but it's about the Alta case, um, which was a groundbreaking um, event in the Sami political movement regarding hydropower development. So it's also very relevant for today's uh, discussions around the green shift. But that's a major film that is brand new and coming to the theaters. And staying in Switzerland, let's chat now with Irina Ozimok. She was on The Urbanist this week. She's the founder of the International Mayor's Summit, a platform that was created to connect local governments with industry leaders and their counterparts. She talked about how the platform was also forced to adapt as a result of the war and how the war has changed the role of mayors in Ukraine. 
The interesting fact that the, basically the format changed because of the war, because initially in Ukraine we had the association of mayors, they were working together, sometimes more, sometimes less, so we wanted to ensure for them the more international exposure, but also ensure that they can meet people from business and civil society, because honestly speaking, sometimes business, they have more money for R&D, they have solutions, so it's good that they cooperate. We were also trying to bring uh, foreign mayors as examples, you know, what uh, are innovations or what are partnerships about and how to change the life of cities for better. And what the war changed, that basically for the first time, probably in Ukraine's history, it's not a formal partnership or what we call sister cities, you know, but it's really practical cooperation and partnership between them. And that's really great. We see that Osaka becomes the partner city for uh, Dnipro, uh, recently hit again and again. And then Mykolaiv cooperates with uh, Danish cities, for instance. And uh, Zhitomer has partnership with Spanish cities. You know, So that's really great that it moved to really a very practical dimension, unfortunately, under the conditions of the war. One thing that I also picked up with the transformation because of the war is kind of the importance and the roles that mayors can play at this challenging time. The mayors really have played an important part here in delivering that message as well. Has that changed the way, I guess, they approach you or the way they ask for these interactions with businesses, as you were describing? I do believe that uh, mayors, like foreign mayors, they become ambassadors of Ukraine. And the role of city is growing. And we saw that, for instance, in a, a small uh, city community, which is Chortkiv in western Ukraine, they started to have a new partnership with Bezier, which is somewhere where Khan is. Yes, no one knew about this city before in Chortkiv. But then, apparently, the mayor of the city had good political connections and he could speak to the presidency of the country of France basically about Ukraine and the need to support. So I do believe first of all foreign mayors become ambassadors of Ukraine and this voice for the government to speak for us. Second, they speak to their communities and they also persuade or uh, give the information so the community is helping because people to people contact were very important. And they also reach us as a platform and they ask which needs there are for Ukrainian cities and that's also very important because some cannot finance military uh, provisions but they can uh, help to rebuild schools and that's very important. Last year already there was this conversation about rebuilding infrastructure and Ukraine has been quite remarkable at that. The pace that railway, bridges, roads get rebuilt to try to ensure life continues and goods can move and military can move and that the country, despite everything, doesn't get disconnected. Is that felt back home, that steadfast rapidness to which the rebuilding of infrastructure is happening? Rebuilding is important and some might say that it's too early to speak about this. No, because people continue living there in Mykolaiv, in Kherson, in small cities you've heard about, uh, you know, that were never known uh, before. People are in a hurry to live there, so they do everything, and then I think it will be a big movement for citizens' participation in rebuilding city. We saw it already in Bucha and Erpin when people went out on the streets, they were clearing streets, there were raves, you know, just to help uh, people, so all creative ways. But reconstruction is um, a very expensive thing, you know, and 
And again, it's not only about building new schools with buildings and walls, but new systems. And lots of people, millions of people are currently abroad. You know, and to make them come back, again, to rebuild systems, not only like buildings, it will be challenging for Ukrainian cities. Of course, the first demand will be to ensure safety which we here pray only for the armed forces of Ukraine. So the process will be challenging, but you know the story, you know, when there is a new attack on Ukrainian cities, and like today that we learned about this helicopter, people continue donating, you know, that's a new way to donate more and then helping each other and creating new, maybe temporarily residential areas for people who lost their homes, you know, those are processes that are like really have the light speed because it cannot be otherwise. Looking at the International Mayor's Summit and the next 12 months, do you have any plans for how it might differ in operation? You said that the war forced the change in how the network operates. Going ahead, do you have any goals that you'd like to achieve? Any projects are on the pipeline? How will the International Summit of Mayors work over the next year? First of all, we didn't have the Mayor Summit as a conference uh, back in uh, 2022, but I really want to have it this year and to have it in Ukraine. We have already enough safe spaces like a bomb shelter in Lviv Hospital, where I come from, or the metro station in uh, Kyiv, you know, or many others, you know, because I really think there is a big interest to Ukrainian cities. Mayors are still coming. It's probably not something that is publicized very often for security uh, reasons, but it's important that people, urbanists, again, businesses, uh, creative uh, people, that they come and they help us to rebuild, because more internationals are in Ukraine than again, more safe it will be, you know, and then this, we also have the slogan that we want to rebuild better, like build better than it was before, yes, and then again, it's about uh, ecological aspects, it's about uh, green agenda, it's about uh, new buildings and uh, appreciation of talents, because cities are for people, so I do believe that uh, this bigger interest and uh, more travel even in these times will allow us to progress faster, you know, and to to learn from the best in this world and also to deliver good results for our people. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Start the year right with Global Insights and a subscription to Monocle. You'll receive 10 issues and four special annuals, plus access to our archive and digital editions. More than that, a subscription will keep you informed, entertained, and ahead of the game on everything from global affairs to hospitality and design. Sign up now and get 15% off any annual subscription. Visit monocle.com forward slash subscribe and enter the code radio23. Radio 
you are listening to the curator of Monaco 24. And now a highlight of my show, The Stack. Cultural journals have been a staple of European life for centuries, variously combining criticism with theory and philosophy, literature with political analysis. They see their role as a driver of cultural and political debate. But their association with academia and small print runs means that their impact is limited and that their survival is constantly under threat. Monaco's Alexei Korolev explores how Europe's cultural journals are faring in times of war and financial crisis. In the dying days of the Soviet Union, an extraordinary thing happened. As censorship crumbled, scores of previously banned novels, poems and political essays were published in literary and academic magazines. Suddenly, these specialist and niche publications turned into popular reading, and soon the regime was dead. There may not have been a direct link between the two, but in much of the rest of Europe, cultural journals have played a similar role that of the truth-sayer. Basically, I think cultural journals always had two functions. Uh, the first would be picking up uh, current trends and developments in, in cultural and intellectual life and channeling them into a broader uh, public sphere or some sort of gegenöffentlichkeit, so a counter-public sphere. And uh, the second uh, function, equally important, uh, that it constitutes some sort of collective memory, which is transcending decades. Andrea Zedebauer is one of the editors of Vespernest, an Austrian literary magazine that started life in 1969. She walks me through a recent issue. We start here uh, with a text by an Austrian intellectual called Wolfgang Müller-Funk, who is, so to say, trying to grasp the concept of the Austrian neutrality. When we started the issue, then Sweden and Finland just had decided to be member of NATO. We have a, a, a piece on art forgery. Then there is a, a piece by two investigative journalists, Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogan, on why Russia is presented as a peaceful empire, basically in the textbooks, Soviet textbooks. And we have a piece on Hannah Arendt and her concept of truth. Yes, and we had a conversation about Orson Welles' famous film F for, for Fake, this we do have in the, in the issue too. So it is uh, actually, just from this uh, brief description, it is very current. It's something that yes. most people would relate to. But then on the other hand, a magazine such as yours is a very, very niche product. I mean, if you stop someone right here in this street, probably they wouldn't know it. So their influence and their role in that sense is very limited, isn't it? Yes, it is. But this is why I said they are, so to say, channeling those trends into a bigger public sphere, which means that bigger media, dailies, weeklies, they are picking up debates which have their origin or have been started. And there are a lot of examples in, in the past that, so to say, an, a new idea started in a, in a small magazine. And then it, so to say, made its way into a broader public because they are detecting trends earlier. But sometimes the mainstream media don't listen, something that Reika Kinga Pop knows well. She's the editor-in-chief of Eurozine, an organization based in Vienna that unites more than 100 titles from across Europe. She uses the war in Ukraine as an example. Eurozine happens to have a, a very strong focus since its inception on Eastern Europe and former Eastern Bloc countries. So for us... These initial sentences about how this hasn't happened since the Second World War, where some of us were really burying our faces in our palms, 
because these issues have been on our radar. We had the colleagues to remind us that this war since 2014 had been ongoing and we mustn't forget about this. And they had been pleading and asking and arguing and sometimes screaming, rightfully so, that, that the European community doesn't fully forget about this. So the layer of publicity that was alert and immediately clocking around, that was culture journals and specialist publications. Despite their central place in European history, most cultural journals subsist on funding. And Reika Kinga Pop thinks that's only fair. Because I don't really view, for instance, EU funding or state funding as a favor extended by the Kaiser. This kind of funding you get because you do public interest work. At the same time, I also think that we really need to rethink the model of public service because we have a sort of 20th century idea of public interest or, or public service in media and in information, which hasn't really adjusted to the reality of right now. So if we want to come up with a public service model that doesn't just enforce a status quo, then we have to pledge specific attention to small and mid-scale, regional, local, niche, specialist media, including cultural journals, but also local journalism, without which we see gigantic political breakdowns. So what's the future of the thick European journal? In a Europe spooked by war and economic uncertainty, will it retain its role as a moral and cultural beacon? A last word to Andrea Zedebauer at the Vespernes magazine. Oh, of course, I will. <laughs> I, I want to advocate for that. They will keep up their role. One specific characteristics of, of cultural journals is probably their obstinacy or their stubbornness. They know all crises, economic crises, shutdowns. So in a way, you know, they pick up strategies and practices from a lot of generations, which means that they are somehow hard to kill. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. That's a fun one for tall stories now. Thomas Lewis investigates how the redesign of Miami's very own version of Muscle Beach is working out for local residents. It was in 1934 in Los Angeles that the term Muscle Beach was coined. It was created to name a new outdoor workout venue built on the sand to the south of the famous Pier at Santa Monica. The new outdoor gym was conceived by the austerely named US Works and Progress Administration and it was designed for gymnasts and acrobats in the area to work out and to hone their physical agility outdoors for everyone to see on the shore of the ocean for free. It's here and a little further along the shore at Venice Beach that workout culture and the popular cult of the bodybuilder is said to have been born in the United States. But for a more recent iteration of the Muscle Beach, head to South Beach, Miami, where at the intersection of 9th Street and Ocean Drive, you'll see the toned and the sculpted silhouettes of the neighborhood's gym goers working out at one of Miami's best used and best designed gyms. South Beach Muscle Beach is located on the sand in Lummus Public Park, which was redesigned and renovated in 2018, and the jewel of which are the Italian-designed workout frames built into the sand, which are as sleek and as well-crafted as the bodies that use them. 
the workout beams are dotted around a central column known as the tree, which includes a ring station, parallel bars, a pull-up bar and elevated hooks for total resistance training. The tree looks like it's reaching up into the air and not only does it echo the verticals of the trees that populate the shoreline on which it's set, but it also looks like it's been designed to resemble capillaries snaking around an outline almost anatomical in its shape of a human heart. The system was created in Italy by the design studio My Equilibria, which specialises in outdoor gym equipment. And by approaching the design of a muscle beach with an eye on how the complex looks and feels not only to those using it, but to the neighbourhood more broadly too, it's become a handsome landmark in the area. Never has working out outdoors looked as good as it does here in South Beach, Miami. And that's thanks to the design of the gym itself, as much as it's down to the physiques of those who use it, day in, day out. You are listening to The Curator. Time now for What We Learned, our weekly segment with Andrew Muller. He reviews the week in sometimes a humorous way. We learned this week that France really isn't messing around vis-à-vis the whole separation of church and state bit. And we learned that, as a consequence, the scrap heaps of statues piled up by assorted seizures of righteous fury around the world these last few years, those de-plinthed, treacherous Confederate generals, evil British slave traders, assorted mendacious colonial conquistadors, are to be joined by the Virgin Mary. It's a tricky one. The bulldozer is revving at the Mother of Christ in the settlement of La Flotte on Ile de Ré. A judge has decreed that the statue which has stood at a local crossroad some 40 years is an intolerable menace to the secular values of the Fifth Republic and will therefore have to go. We have not, despite minutes of desultory research, yet learned whether or not whoever has been deputised to swing the wrecking ball has fitted a lightning conductor to their apparatus. We continued to learn... and, if we're honest, be mildly entranced by, of the backstory of George Santos, newly ensconced US congressman representing the 3rd District of New York, the voters of which might want to have a bit of a think about what they've done. Listeners with memories stretching back as far as last week will recall that we had already learned that Santos was not contrary to claims he'd made whilst campaigning, a college volleyball star, the son of a 9-11 victim, a property tycoon, a Wall Street financier, Jewish, or possibly even called George Santos, or indeed a US citizen. But still, the congressman's underpaid press secretary will have reassured themselves which politician hasn't told a few harmless stretches on the stump. Look, I understand everybody wants to nitpick at me. I, I'm going to reassure this once and for all. I'm not a facade. I'm not a persona. 
quite, Congressman. Quite. Oh. But we learned this week of a further stiff challenge to the abilities of Santos's image management team. We learned that Santos appeared to have bilked three thousand dollars. Who? Who? What? I've never heard of him. From a GoFundMe page. No, don't. No, no, no. no, no, no. no. He set up to raise money for surgery. For a disabled homeless veteran dog. Bloody hell. Well, indeed. We learned, however, that the Republican Party, which has arguably drifted somewhat from what Lincoln or Eisenhower might have envisaged, had nevertheless appointed Congressman Santos to two House committees those overseeing small business and science, doubtless in recognition of Santos's accomplishments in founding Apple and splitting the atom. Which, hilariously, was shortly before we learned of photographs showing that Santos was, for a time, a keen participant in drag pageants in Brazil under the name Kitara Ravash. Nothing wrong with that, obviously, unless you have, as Congress Santos or whoever has, positioned yourself as a strident social conservative. So we learned that we can now look forward to the Republican Party and its associated media cheerleaders pulling a screeching 180-degree skid around to the position that drag is good, actually. Sticking with the theme of disreputable weirdos in billowing dresses deploying pious morality as a cover for their general unpleasantness, and to be clear, we're taking a swing at George Santos individually here, not drag queens as a collective, we learned that reforms made to online bear pit Twitter by new owner and that dad of your friend who is on Twitter a lot but doesn't quite understand it, Elon Musk, do have some enthusiastic supporters. The Taliban will be needing that awkward coughing clip. <coughs> we learned that several senior Talibs had decided that eight bucks a month was excellent value for the prominence and gravitas associated with Twitter's verification badge, often referred to as a blue tick, although it is, in fact, a white tick on a blue background. However, we subsequently learned that, despite Taliban official Mohammad Jalal earnestly praising Musk for, quote, making Twitter great again, unquote, Twitter does have some limits, and the Talib's blue ticks, which are in fact white ticks on a blue background, had been removed. So we learned that the Taliban have been, in the vernacular of the modern paranoid conservative, cancelled. Honestly, is nobody safe from the woke mob, etc. And... Sort of sticking with the subject of odious tyrannies being breezily enabled by tech companies based in the country they're fighting a war with at barely one remove, but anyway, we learned more hearteningly that Russia has in fact recognised the sovereign borders of Ukraine. Well, sort of. We learned that Russia's embassy in Sweden, engaging in an act of the puerile trolling which passes for Russian foreign policy these days, had tweeted a map of Europe seeking to demonstrate how much cheaper petrol was in Russia than elsewhere. Well, whose fault is that, etc. Said map depicted Ukraine entire, very much including the illegally occupied regions of Crimea and the Donbass. 
let's have that awkward coughing again. <coughs> we learned, therefore, that Russia's ambassador to Sweden, next time he travels, would be well advised to ask for a room on the ground floor. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And as we like to do every week here on The Curator, we always like a good recipe. This one is from Harriet Mansell. It's a recipe from the UK's Jurassic Coast. Hi, my name is Harriet Mansell. I'm the chef owner of two restaurants in Lyme Regis, Dorset. Uh, the first one where I'm the full-time chef at is called Robin Wild. We serve a local seasonal tasting menu. And my second restaurant, Lilac Restaurant and Wine Bar, serves a small plates menu. Today I'm going to talk you through a recipe that we serve a lot here at Robin Wild, and that is a beetroot, dandelion root and yoghurt crustade. We're going to start things off by making the case. We take 100 grams of flour, 6 grams of sugar and 7 grams of salt and we pop those dry ingredients in a bowl. We then take one raw beetroot, we chop it up slightly and add it to a blender with around about 100 millilitres of milk and we blitz this up. We then strain this. It's a beautiful purple looking liquid that tastes of beetroot. We weigh off 80 grams of that and we pop it in a bowl to which we're going to add the rest of the wet ingredients. That's 100 grams of sparkling water and an egg. We mix those together and then we add them to the dry ingredients. We then finish it with 12 grams of melted butter and we let that sit for a few minutes just to allow the flour to absorb all the liquids, meaning we'll have a much more stable batter for when we're ready to fry. We've preheated some oil to 155 degrees centigrade. It doesn't matter if it's a little bit higher. Inside that oil that we've preheated, we've popped a crustard iron, otherwise known as a pie tea mould. Uh, if you go onto the internet and Google the word pie, P-I-E, and then T-E-E, you will find the uh, type of mould that we're actually using. It took me a while to find it myself, so uh, that's why I'm giving you the heads up. So we take this crustard iron slash pie tea mould, and we preheat it in that oil and then we dip the batter in. We fry it for about 30 seconds until it's cooked. And then we set it aside in the restaurant. We pop it in the dehydrator to keep it nice and crispy until using it. But you could pop it in your oven if you're working from home. Meanwhile, we have some beetroots that we're cooking on the barbecue, skin on. We cook them low and slow. In our restaurant, we use a big green egg and we pull the lid down so that the beetroots simultaneously smoke and steam. After a good couple of hours of cooking and softening, we peel the beetroot, dice it into tiny little dice about somewhere between one and two millimetres. And then we dress them with a dandelion root oil. We actually use dandelion coffee a lot of the time uh, when we haven't got around to making the dandelion root ourselves. To make the dandelion root coffee oil, we take 100 grams of a neutral oil and we blitz that with 50 grams of the toasted dandelion root. We then blend and strain it. Once we've got that oil, we season our beetroots with it, with some extra salt and with some crushed pink peppercorns. The pink peppercorns really liven up the beetroots. The other element of this crustade is the yoghurt. So we cook yoghurt in two different ways to add flavour and texture. 
We smoke some yogurt on our barbecue when the embers are dying down and the heat is reducing. We pop some soaked wood chips on the barbecue and then we pop our yogurt in a metal container on there and pull the lid down so it takes on all of that smoke. We also caramelize some yogurt. To caramelize our yogurt, we take 300 grams of yogurt mixed with 50 grams of butter. We put it in um, a steel-based pan and we cook it over a low heat for about half an hour, stirring continuously until you get a sweet, tangy crumble. We pop that aside until serving. To plate the beetroot crustade, take your crustade inside, place some of the seasoned smoked yogurt. On top, you'll place your seasoned beetroots. And on top of that, you'll place the caramelized yogurt that you've crumbled between your fingers so it's nice and fine. In our restaurant, we like to use a seasonal green as a garnish. So at the moment, we would be going out to look for some yarrow and we'd be frying this off because it makes a tasty, crispy little garnish. We will often sprinkle some dehydrated dandelion root on top of the caramelized yogurt as well to add a visual element. So that is my beetroot and yogurt crustade in a couple of different ways. And I very much hope that you enjoy making this at home. Uh, it's been lovely to come here today to talk on this podcast. And finally, from Monaco on design, this week they head to Paris, specifically the 12 arrondissement. They visited a stained glass atelier to find out why the craft is as relevant as ever. It's really 50% in our business, 50% restoration and 50% creation. I'm Federica, I'm working in Paris in a stained glass atelier. We can work the traditional one for a church, for a chapel, in a, there are so many famous cemeteries in Paris. Restoration for the Usmanian building in Paris. On the stairs you have many stained glasses. Especially in Paris, uh, you want to hide yourself from the neighbor. So instead of putting the curtains, you have like a really artisanal uh, creation just for you. It works really well. The, um, the Art Deco, it's more like uh, white glass uh, with different texture and uh, quite simple structure. It really depends. It's really a various uh, universe. I really prefer creation. I like to invent uh, my, my motifs. Stained glass at the beginning was really for the church, but it's really not uh, just for it. We can really do really modern stuff. What I'm doing on the other table is a restoration for a young couple who bought an apartment in Paris. And so what I did is to change all the lead that was old, I wash all the pieces of glass and I am rebuilding uh, again the, the stained glass. So the, those are three stained glasses. I did the first two. I just finished to solder the, the first part and then I will do the second one. This was a creation really for us, Paravent. Uh, we usually bring it to the um, showroom of uh, artisan and uh, deco. It's quite old. We did it 
10 years ago. And so this is a collaboration with a painter as well. It's a mix of different techniques, painting and gravure. All around the stained glass, there is a, like the skin that you can see is a galusha. Synthetic stingray skin. Now we can't use anymore the, hopefully, the, the real skin. So this is a covering with uh, this synthetic skin. Stained glass with lead, uh, the Tiffany technique. It's another technique to build the, the stained glass. Uh, the joining are not with lead, but this is lead, for example. The copper foil, the, so, ah, like this one. So it's a tape of copper foil that you put all around the piece of glass and you cover it with stain. It's very solid. It's a quite young uh, technique created by uh, Comfort uh, Tiffany at the, at the beginning of the 20th century. We have to consider them as a painting. We have to think that with stained glass we had really thousands of different glass textures. We can paint on them, cut them in all the shape that we want. We can really do nearly the same things. We can really choose all the color or the, the traditional way, or we can make an abstract uh, stained glass, whatever we want. We have no limit. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thank you for listening.